Welcome to Paddling Adventures Radio. I'm Sean Rowley, and with me is Derek Spesh. Hello. What's happening, bud? Not much, man. Just I'm, I'm excited for the colder weather. Makes the bugs go away. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, I'm looking forward to some fall camping trips and so on, but uh, it's it's nice. We got some, uh, the weather is a changing. The extreme, oh, well, you know, this the, this weekend is uh, supposed to be up in the 30s, so. so. Yeah, <laughs> it's been raining a lot lately. It has. Which is, you know. It's it's our dead in, flowers need it. <laughs> it's been an insane amount of rain. It's uh, I'm, we're not I'm not used to seeing so much rain. It's uh, mm-hmm. and I think it's uh, well, what is it? Mississippi is currently there's some communities in Mississippi, lower Mississippi region where they uh, there's no water available for them to drink because they've had so much flooding. It's uh, anywhere you look, like uh, Pakistan, India, Central U.S. Uh, so the uh, in, even in California they have like flood warnings and stuff in California, which is normally dry. Yeah, it's not necessarily a bad thing for California. No, I know, but when it washes everything away, it uh, kind of defeats the the luck of having rain. <laughs> well, Vegas, Vegas was flooding. About the, time. The streets in Vegas were flooding. About time. I know, right? Wash so hopefully, some of that away. makes it into Lake Mead and uh, <laughs> <laughs> work its way down. Eh? Yeah, we're we're having peculiar weather events. It's yeah, as long as it doesn't get too hot and it doesn't get too cold. We need to find whereabouts in the planet. The Goldilocks zone? Yeah. Where exactly? (laughs) The Goldilocks zone is on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. That it's perfect temperature. I remember being in San Diego one year in August, and it was like the most perfect temperature. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I remember when I first, uh, I went to college in in, uh, Cornwall, Ontario, and it's in the St. Lawrence uh, River Valley. And so in the St. Lawrence River Valley in uh, September, in like August, September, it's, uh, it's, it's you just cook. And mm-hmm. so I was in, I was living in, in uh, whatever you call it, uh, in dorm. The style. barracks? No, dorm. dorm. Was it a dorm? It was dorm, yeah. It was a civilian college. And uh, I remember like at the week before school started, I had already moved into my into my room and, and it was so hot. And I said, what's going on? And they said, oh, it's like this every year. Every year, September is this hot? They said, "Yeah, it's a, it's the Saint Lawrence Seaway Valley. It just does that. It holds the weather in. It's uh, it's just because it's the valley area." And so, it was a dorm room. So I went to Canadian Tire. I bought a ceiling fan, installed it myself in the ceiling of the dorm room. It was like, "Screw you guys! It's too hot in here." <laughs> and you couldn't open a window because it was hotter outside than it was inside. Oh, that's been, yeah, there's it's nothing like being in the office all day, Yeah, nice and comfortable, yeah. and then you walk out at the end of the day and you're like, ugh, <laughs> I got to go sit in rush hour traffic yeah. in this now. <laughs> you just melt as you cross that yeah. parking lot, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to the, the, as the temperatures start to cool off, it's, uh, I've always liked fall. Because, uh, you know, the, the apples, you can start going picking wild ap- uh, apples and stuff. And, you know, the first crust of, uh, of ice on, on puddles. And, and, oh, I'm excited already. You want to go winter camping already, don't you? Uh, I'm thinking fall camping right now. Winter camping's <laughs> to come after that. Well, we, I got my dry suit. Mm-hmm. So when we go up for Halloween up to Mew Lake, oh, I'm going to bring the canoe mm-hmm. and my dry suit. Ah. Right. Because it's, I mean, it's the end of October going into November, yeah. so I'll just try it out. Try it out yeah. and give it a little spin and all right. Yeah. <laughs> go float around on me lake. Yeah. I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna go do some kayaking this uh, this winter and whatnot, too. Yeah. So if I got the dry suit and I got open water. Have you used it yet out in Lake Ontario or anything? Have yeah. You, you well, have used it? We went on that day with Peter. Oh, yeah. You I went for a yeah, 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 yeah. I forgot about that. You're in, oh, you got a day. great memory. It's just short. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Too many head injuries. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, yeah, we got a few things planned and I've had to cancel a, a couple of things as well. Just got way too much going on and a few things going on that I won't get into. But uh, no, um, we're actually supposed to be in uh, Tomogamy next week. Oh, right on. So we're taking a break. Is this the fall we, change of the season thing you're going to? The, yeah, it's the nice. change of seasons, seasons uh, ceremony that we're going up to. What is it's like the 25th anniversary of their doing it? We're like, why are they? Is it they, 25th? Or they send out yeah, a 25th? Yeah, they sent out a public thing so anybody who wants to come, come along type yeah. thing. Yeah, no, it's they do it every year and uh, they say, yeah, come on up and yeah. enjoy the weekend and mm-hmm. 
you know, get together with like-minded people who yeah. are into paddling and stuff and, yeah. uh, you know, um, nature, saving the environment, mm-hmm. that all. I mean, it's not a big hippie commune sort of thing by <laughs> any any stretch of the means, but, uh, uh, yeah, you know, a lot of like-minded people come around and they come to just celebrate the changing of the season Yeah, from uh, summer into fall and getting mm-hmm. ready for, right for fall and nice paddling and... And we have a symposium coming up in November, don't we? The uh, Winter Camping Symposium yes. is happening so in November. So it's like the 6th Fifth, 5th or 6th? Oh, yeah, yeah, something like that. Because we, we did skip there one There are just two. so many that have been skipped now, I don't know. The first it's one just was... like the Burt Reynolds Memorial <laughs> River, which we <laughs> we got feedback from the group on that yeah, one, yeah. didn't we? Yeah, Martin said that him and Scott did a cross-the-Algonquin Park trip, so they said that's number four. Me and Mike didn't go, so we weren't included. So, and I'm always thinking, well, four didn't happen, but I don't recall being invited by Martin and Scott to cross Conklin. Oh, it's it's yeah, yeah conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, so it's best it's just to by the year. It's yeah, Burt Reynolds Moral River on 2022. Yeah, yeah, go by the year, not by the uh, the go. number. There you go. <laughs> and see, that allows you to change things because there could be two in the exactly because you. You could split the group. 22. A, A and 22 Wabakimi B. edition. Yeah. yeah. 22 Algonquin edition. Something you like that. You could do like 20 different Burt Reynolds exactly. a year. Exactly. There you go, buddy. Yeah. See? Always thinking. <laughs> always thinking. <laughs> we met, met on the last trip, we met some, if you was up in Wabakimi, there's a lot of uh, flying fishing and it's like 99% of them are Americans, right? So we told a couple people the story of, of you know, what we're doing in Spurt Rounds Memorial River Road. Boy, they got a laugh out of that. And the first thing is, oh, yeah, deliverance. <laughs> yeah, that's the first thing I always put Two movies, whenever you talk paddling, mm-hmm. the two movies, I I, was, I could write them in a, on a piece of paper yeah. and you would write the exact same two. Mm-hmm. Deliverance and... I don't know what one you're t- thinking of. Broke back mountain. <laughs> that's not a canoeing. I know, but that's what everybody thinks. Oh, you're going back country with all the boys, are you? Yeah. yeah. My my brother-in-law, he always, every time I come back from a trip, he goes, hey, how was your broke back trip? It's like, yeah. oh. <laughs> Jimmy. That's when you just look at him. Well, aren't you the jealous one? <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> Never think you were the jealous type, Jimmy. <laughs> uh, speaking of trips. Oh, not really. <laughs> There's port- Speaking of portage, we, we got to work on our segments. Yeah, yeah, we've been doing this what six and a half years now. We still need some work. Ely, Minnesota has a marathon every year, mm-hmm. and this year September 24th. If you want to join in, a full marathon, a half marathon, a kids race, and a 5K run. Full marathon being 26.2 miles. I wonder why the point two. It is the distance between two cities in Greece. Oh, yeah. I guess that would be the mar- marathon started for the yeah. Olympics and stuff, right? Way back in. Or was that the marathon, the uh, go tell the other Greeks that the bad guys yeah. are here? The Parthenians are on their way. I don't know. Nah, uh, something like that. We'll have to do. Yay, left, history. I'll have to look something up during the commercial. <laughs> Go history. Uh, 26.2 miles or 42.2 kilometers. However. There's a twist. There's a twist if you would like, <laughs> if you prefer. If you just want to do the normal. Oh, it's run, not all run. that. I, it's, oh, no, no, it no, does. no. It's, a, it, it's an either or sort of thing. So regular runners are. Are welcome. Mm-hmm. They can go run their little tootsies off and yep. doodly doodly do in their little spandex and yep. and running shirts, thinking they're all that and more. Or <laughs> you can beef it up a little bit. If the marathon part isn't challenging enough for you, you can portage a canoe while doing it. Yes. This is a thing. The full marathon racers will start and run the same course as the full marathon. Uh, and must be able to finish within six and a half hours, but you got a canoe. <laughs> so you're portaging that canoe. Half marathon, same deal, have to finish within five, six and a half hours. So the canoes can be used uh, for the Ely Marathon or Boundary Waters Bank Half Marathon. Must be a traditional canoe designed to be paddled by one or two people. 
commonly used for extended time in the Boundary Waters canoe uh, area. Kayaks, models, plastic, inflatable, and cardboard are not allowed. You brought up the, well, what about, what about, what about skin on frame skin canoes? Skin on frame. <laughs> I gotta It'd be think, nice and light. I got to think that would be disallowed as well. Yeah, And then we mentioned uh, canvas, uh, cedar, cedar strip canvas. Cedar canvas, the cedar, <laughs> That'd be a hundred pound canoe. <laughs> a fiberglass cottage canoe. A grumman. <laughs> there we go. Now, I wonder, do you think it's a, it, like, it doesn't say in the notes here, but uh, I think it'd be a scramble start. Can you imagine the confusion and all the, be a lot of concussions going on. Well, that's why you're not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody just, Bonk, bang. Go. <laughs> taking out people at the front of the canoe, spinning back of the canoe, yeah. taking out half the, uh, yeah, see, that's what they have. They have, have another one is... The Portage Marathon Smash em Up Derby. <laughs> so as you're about to pass somebody, yeah. you can take them out with your canoe. Exactly. You can't kick them. You can't punch them. You can't, your body cannot yeah. touch them. But you can use the canoe as a weapon. That's like the old stock car races where you had to bump to pass. Yeah. You had to hit the guy to pass. See? That's, that's what I'm thinking, buddy. Full contact. <laughs> Put bonk. a little spin on it for next yeah. year. You'd know there's be contact, but you hear the big drum sound, bonk. Yeah. <laughs> and there he's in the ditch. Oh, I don't know how you got there. Sorry, my bad. And you got to apologize as you go by, too. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> uh, both the full marathon and half marathon start lines have areas in which your canoe can be stored. You can drop it off uh, anytime at either location, Friday or uh, September 23rd, before the race starts on Saturday. You may also choose to rent the lightest canoe for your race. They'll be transported to the start line uh, for you and picked up at the finish line. That would be the easiest, I'm thinking. <laughs> uh, below, there's they have some canoe outfitting partners that uh, you can click on and uh, go rent from them. There's relay teams. So someone on your team is getting screwed. <laughs> okay, I'm telling you that right now. Full marathon teams will be allowed up to seven members. Half marathon teams are up to six members. Each team will be issued one bib that need to stay within the canoe and be passed on to your teammate. Okay. So uh, what do they got here? The first runner will start the marathon or half marathon uh, field. There will not be a separate start for the relay teams. Other team members will need to be at their exchange areas well before the fastest runners pass by as area roads will be closed. The exchange areas are listed below, and they again, they, they have all those. Uh, exchange, uh, exchange areas will be at the aid stations and will be marked. If you are in a team less than six people, you can choose which exchange areas you would like to be placed at. So they got uh, these six different... Exchange areas, one, two, three, four, five, six, yeah, six different ones uh, for the full marathon. So, so it's a double loop then, I guess. So somebody starts, right, mm-hmm. and has to run three miles. <laughs> Your second relay team member is at the three-mile mark. You pass the bib and the canoe out of him, and off he goes for four miles to mile number seven. Then he passes it off to team member three, who has to run four miles to mile 11. And he passes it off to the sucker of the group, who has to <laughs> run five miles. <laughs> I want to be the first guy or the last guy. I want to be the first guy. To, yeah, I'm not being sucker number middle. So then he runs his five, and then he passes it off to the guy that then runs four, and then the last guy who runs three. So if you're getting in a group before you agree to being on the relay team for the Ely uh, Marathon Portage, make sure you ask, am I the first guy or the last guy? Is it, oh, you'll be the middle guy? No. Turn around and walk away. Half marathon, uh, this is uh, mile two, mile four, mile six, mile eight. And then the last guy got to run three to, <laughs> to, to mile 11. So, I mean, that's just the extra mile for him. But, but yeah, the guy that got to run three miles to begin with, 
You figure he's the freshest guy. Yeah. He's got to run three. The guy who's been hanging around for a while, waiting and waiting and waiting, he's got to run five? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not that guy. <laughs> uh, if you want to find more information, go to elymarathon.com, E-L-Y-marathon.com. They got all the information on registering and, and more information on uh, the aid stations and, and where exactly these these mile markers are for uh, changing the, in the relay and stuff like that. Sounds cool, but I don't think so. I'm trying to figure out the timings for this because you have to do it in six and a half hours. Mm-hmm. So you're expected to, this is a pretty mean pace to keep up with a canoe on your shoulders. Yeah. You better have some nice padded yoke. I know, right? Right? Yeah. I wonder if you could <laughs> fill, it's like fill the canoe with helium balloons. Ooh. <laughs> I don't think there's enough helium balloons to, you won't, won't be, it won't make, make a difference. There's not enough balloons you could put in there. <laughs> I, I would be worried while running. Mm-hmm. That the yoke was going to break. Yes. With the canoe bouncing With the bouncing that hard, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so don't take your own canoe. And <laughs> I, I feel really bad for those people that use two paddles as a yoke. When oh, they yeah, I can imagine. Uh, well, they wouldn't be doing that. They wouldn't be doing that. They wouldn't be doing that. So how far did you get? 30 feet. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I'm out. Is. I'm done. <laughs> Call it a day. That's crazy. Yeah. Sounds fun, though. Mm-hmm. People do it. <laughs> uh, one of our we've talked about different different uh, places in, in in the world that have issues with access yes to the back country one of our our longtime listeners there Michael uh, Nichols he sent this one saying might be uh, interested in checking this one out how to fight for the right to roam on BC's lands and waters British Columbia. So the wording sounds very similar to what we've heard. I think it's like Ireland or Scotland, and we've we've read about different countries who have different rules for right to roam and access to waterways. And and uh, I know in Canada we ha- we lost a few rights uh, uh, about a decade ago or so when they got rid of all the Waterway Protection Act that was in place. And yeah, there's a whole bunch of different yeah. Things. So this this is something that's coming a little bit back, and it's. BC, but it might spread to other provinces. Mm-hmm. But uh, so they developed a tool for British Columbians who want to legally challenge the no trespassing signs. Now, who developed the tool? Does it say uh, Victoria uh, University of Victoria? Oh, the the, the uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so a couple, of, I guess, a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court judge uh, was uh, lambasted the government in Victoria for its failure to protect the public's right to access. Uh, lakes, streams, trails, forests, roads, mountains, waterfronts of of uh, British Columbia, which was they once had promoted as super natural, mm-hmm. right? So really, really natural. Uh, the Justice Joel Groves uh, specifically addressing how BC government did nothing for decades to stand up for fishers trying to enjoy some of the lakes on the Mammoth Douglas Lake Ranch owned by a U- U.S. billionaire. And he was, in effect, championing the movement now known as the right to roam. Outdoor people who are engaged in hundreds of battles like this at uh, the Douglas Ranch to assert their legal right to nature, uh, including to open the Fraser River Trail that had been blockaded by uh, Vancouver's private Marine Drive Golf Club and to continue to use a six-kilometer Crystal Falls Trail in Coquitlam. Like Justice Groves, these uh, nature lovers are keenly aware that for a variety of reasons, many of the countless no trespassing signs posted through both rural and urban BC aren't legally worth the paper, plastic, metal, or wood they're printed on. So, but they say, you know, even though they, these people that have the property just start sticking these up everywhere, yeah. it still does intimidate people. 99% of the don't people know. will go, oh, well, I'm not going to, mm-hmm. it's not worth a hassle to go for this walk. I'll find some other place. Right. So recreationalists are now getting a boost from the University of Victoria legal specialists who have spelled out precisely how the public can rightfully and responsibly access the country's land and waterways. And this this book that they developed, a 58-page book, this is what, if it catches on, is going to come across the country and I, I think we'll have this sort of thing uh, 
in Ontario in no time flat. Mm-hmm. It's titled Wild Places and Green Spaces, A Citizen's Guide to Proving Public Access. And see, that's the thing right there is proving public yes. access. Yes, so this is a tool to prove access. This is not a, this is not the, uh, the, what are they, you know, the guide to trespassing. Mm-hmm. This is, this is to prove that you, we do have public access to certain areas like crown lands, public lands. Yep. And they want to legally challenge the no trespassing signs that stand between them and their recreational areas. Uh, University of Victoria environmental law professor Calvin Sanborn supervised the project on behalf of Outdoor Recreation Council of BC. He says it's designed for citizens who seek to make a legal case that their bit of paradise is still publicly accessible. The Douglas Lake Ranch case is one of the big big ones, but it's a multitude of conflicts that sees British Columbians locked out of wild places where they used to go. An outdoors group based in Merritt won at BC Supreme Court, but lost the Court of Appeals due to what mounted to a technicality. Uh, Judge uh, Groves said BC's Attorney General needs to improve its trespass laws and defend people's rights to move in the natural world. But until reform happens, this guide can help British Columbians use current legal principles to achieve public access to many places. And they, they talk about what exactly this, this guide is going to do for you. First thing the Citizen's Guide does is describe exactly how the public can gather the evidence needed to prove ordinary people have a right to go onto wilderness roads, trails, lakes, foreshores, and waterways that have been illicitly close to hikers, kayakers, fishers, and other nature lovers. Book includes crucial tips on how to use land registry documents, government maps, and other public resources to show how private household are Sorry, private yeah, householders are blocking pathways to waterfronts. Uh, the right-of-way to ocean beaches and lake shores are much more prevalent than most realize, but the trails are often hidden because of property owners in B.C., like other parts of North America, are in the habit of putting a glut of dubious private property signs. So even if they put it there, it may not be private property. They may not have the right to put the sign. They're just doing it because they're trying to protect what they perceive as their currently private land. Mm-hmm. You see that you often see that where homes uh, come onto uh, like lakes or oceans or something, and so that's that would be a foreshore. I just looked it up. Foreshore. So, <laughs> so we it's were, not a distance. We doing, no, it's it's not a length of time either. <laughs> Foreshore. So it's a, a foreshore is the part of a shore between high and low water marks or between the water and cultivated or developed land. So th- that's the a beach area mm-hmm. on a lake in front of a house. The beach area is is public land. And often what you see, like uh, any number this of places. This is a private beach. Yeah, private beach, do not trespass. People try and put fences on the beach so you can't walk the beach. And it's like, what are you doing? This is this is mm-hmm. not private land. And so this guide will help you and walk you through the process of, of proving that it is public lands. Yeah. Uh, second thing the guide does is lay down the legal principles outdoors advocates can invoke to prove a right to travel a road or path. One important way is to show that government money was once used even a century ago to maintain a route on forested or ranch land. And this was interesting. That would make the route what is legally referred to as a highway which would basically prove it's still dedicated to public use. As the lawyer guy says, once a highway, always Always a highway. highway. Mm -hmm. I found that interesting. Yeah, it is. So if you had previous access roads, and so what they say is it had to be like either federally or provincially maintained. So if it was plowed in the winter, and so there's a lot of areas where you see a new, like, for example, the new 407 was built through Ontario, and some abandoned parts of land, road, old roadways might have been abandoned. I don't know how many times you've been driving up north and and you're driving along a new highway, you look into the woods, it's like, oh, there's some pavement over there in the forest. Mm -hmm. That was the old highway. So that would be still public access. still public access. Mm Mm-hmm. 
public's help is crucial to further the right to roam movement, says Louise Peterson, Executive Directory of Outdoor Recreation Council of BC. We are very concerned that access to outdoor places for fly fishers, hikers, bird watchers, kayakers, and other recreationalists are gradually disappearing in both rural and urban areas of as roads, trails, and paths are being blocked by gates, fences, and no trespassing signs. Taking just one conflict, the effort to end the golf club's blockade of Vancouver's Fraser River Valley uh, Trail Sanborn said the Citizen's Guide helps advocates understand the circumstances that make a pathway public. If the facts and principles line up, the person and their lawyer can seek justice and perhaps get no trespassing signs removed. Mm-hmm. So they need people just to start stepping up they and going, They need people to start oh. challenging these signs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, taking just one... Co- or, whoops, did I miss something here? Um as it's not as if hikers, swimmers, and climbers want carte blanche to the terrain and water. No, I mean, we don't want to just be we don't, zipping all we over We don't want to willy-nilly walk anywhere, but if there's an established trail like the uh, Fraser River Trail, mm-hmm. like we can't just be blocked because the golf course says, no, that kind of cuts through our property. It's like, well, no, it's always been a trail. Yeah. Uh, the guy stresses that BC's Land Act expects anyone using government-owned crown land to be responsible, act safely, remove all garbage, and erect no permanent structures so that the enjoyment of other crown land users is, is respected. Yes. We'll get into something but yes. maybe a little later. Yeah. More on that later. <laughs> While this citizen's guide makes it clear, it doesn't makes clear is what it does make clear is it doesn't deal with the complex issues surrounding First Nations claims yes. and titles to BC lands. That's something that's something completely, not, yeah. completely different. Um, with its many insights, the guided and upcoming workshops offered by University of Victoria's Environmental Law Center should help conserve more natural places for the common good. Justice Grove said it makes no sense for the government to have stewardship of large chunks of land and water on behalf of the people and then sit back and do nothing as citizens are unjustifiably told to go away. Go away. So that's pretty cool that they're they're doing something about that and giving people direction on, oh, no, no, here, here's a book. Mm-hmm. Go through it. And if you can find through all these different means that there used to be yeah. a, a route through there, yeah. go to town, buddy. Go mm-hmm. to town. And if they want to raise a, a stink about it and charge you, just have all your stuff ready to go. Yeah. And then, uh, then sue the pass so off So you them. could argue the point with Gandalf. <laughs> yes, I shall oh, pass. pass. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> As I look across at Sean, who looks like Gandalf. <sighs> I tell you. You shall not pass. Oh, yes, I shall. Bonneville Salt Flats. Yes. This is an interesting one. So I've been getting, there's a couple of pictures I've been getting a lot lately. Mm-hmm. And one of them is this crystal blue path going through the Utah salt flats yep. and kayakers going through. I don't know why it's popped up recently because I've seen it. I sent it to you too. I've seen yeah. it pop up a couple times. I was talking to Alan about it and he said he was within two miles of it or two kilometers mm-hmm. of that. And because it shows that he sent me a picture of his... Uh, of his Subaru with a kayak on the roof as he's parked that's on the when, salt Yeah, flats. that's when he, him and his brother were yeah, yeah, heading down yeah. that way a couple of years back. So many because of pictures like that, many people think you can go kayaking at the Bonneville Salt Flats. And I'm finding, because you found there's something. mixed and I information. Found some, yeah, there's a lot of yeah. mixed information. Some people are saying you can't. They're not saying it's not legal. Mm-hmm. They're saying, they're, they're, it sounds more like, the, uh, as you said, they're strongly discouraging yes. this. They're trying to protect people from themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, you know, like I say, photos of people on these long turquoise streams. And a lot of people think it's Photoshop because that stream tends to have murk. It'd be murky and not clear. Mm-hmm. But there's when you go to Google Maps, you see there's some blue stuff. You can see there's some blue screen, yeah, other yeah, ones yeah. And, and whatnot. Now, one thing I saw was according to the Bureau of Land, Land Management in the U.S., the canals are from the potash production and are just east of the Bonneville Salt Flats. They are for potash mining activities and are not safe for public use. Do not swim, access, float, kayak, canoe, or do anything else on these canals. 
But if you actually go into the Bonneville Salt Flats, on the west side where we were looking, yep. there's more of these canals. They seem to go a bit everywhere. Yeah. It's like they're collecting groundwater from... Because the Bonneville Salt Flats, it's, well, it's an old lake. It used to be yeah. super deep, and so everything's uh, evaporated away. And so the, uh, the still, it's, it's ringed by mountains. So all the groundwater that comes out of the mountains flows into these canals, and those canals flow into the potash company. Mm-hmm. And the potash company uses this water to pull potash out of the water. They, they're basically... Uh, making a heavier brine solution and a lot so a lot of these canals through evaporation are it's a very salty solution so i gotta think there's some parts that you can are just pure water and you can you can you be able to paddle paddle it or something but as you get closer to that plant it's yeah you don't want to be doing that Yes, yes. Yeah. So and I think I think that's where the whole confusion is exactly. coming through. And is. what you see is, uh, so state troopers, they, they it's illegal to park on the side of the I-80, which is the whatever highway is named after President. Roosevelt. The Roosevelt Highway. Sure. So, something like that. Anyway, so the, the I-80, they, it's illegal to park on the side of the I-80, which is the easiest way to access some of these yeah. canals going into the, but you're really close to the potash plant there. And uh, but if you go off into the flats and towards the foothills, there's some other areas where you you'd have to go a long ways across the salt flats to access some of these canals. So I think it's really it's a public safety thing. So they're mm-hmm. saying it's not exactly illegal; it's just for public safety. You really shouldn't do it. Yeah. But uh, but I mean, if you go up the Bonneville Speed Speedway Road, yes, there's it, they cross a canal a couple passes canals underneath there. the Speedway Road. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. and there's a couple of spots where it splits and you can probably park there or something. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. Know. I don't. Don't take that as gospel. I don't know. Yeah, never, yeah, yeah. We're not giving anybody we're, permission we're, to do this. We Google mapped it. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's our. That's the limit of our expertise. <laughs> of our expertise. So it was, Google Maps is yeah. screwing with us. But it was some. Uh, so it, there are some really remarkable photos that we found on it mm-hmm. and shows people kayaking down this like it's this pure blue canal and so there's some word online that maybe some of these pictures are photoshopped but then i saw a video of it from a drone view and so i don't know it's uh it looks like a pretty cool place to think that you could you know stand a paddleboard or kayak in the some of these uh on some of these uh salty canals all i'd be thinking of is damn it's hot I know, I know. <laughs> and you're surrounded by salt. <laughs> yeah. And apparently you can't even, so at, at, during winter and after winter, the water table rises in that area. Oh, yeah, it's like quicksand. You can't spots. even drive there. Yeah. It's like you have to wait until the ground is super dry before you can, or your car sinks into this salty sludge, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so obviously in the spring there'll be higher water levels, but you'll lose your vehicle. <laughs> Yeah. And that might be a bit of a drawback, especially if you're driving out where they do their speed, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. speed uh, record <laughs> thingies. Dude's just about to reach the world record. Punk. Oh, he hit my truck. <laughs> yes, exactly. What are you doing out here, man? I'm stuck. I'm stuck. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Leave No Trace. You yes. brought these things to me, so you can talk about them. <laughs> yes. So it's it, it's something that we've often talked about. We've Everybody complains about it, well, except for the people that make the mess. But we've seen where people are abusing the backcountry, the front country, crown land. And so I came across this story. It doesn't really relate to paddling, except for the fact people are abusing backcountry and, and uh, you know, which should be pristine locations. <clears throat> so... Uh, what the the story is about uh why you know why can't we have we can't have nice things anymore and this article is about why we can't climb in nice places anymore so on july 22nd of 2022 this year so before july 22nd k2 which is the second highest peak on the planet uh the, the there had been about 300 people that had ever managed to make it to the peak so that's a very small number there's uh <clears throat> obviously a long history yeah it's a long history so a lot more people have made it to the top of everest but everest is the tallest right so anyways up until july 22nd of this year about 300 people have ever made it to the the peak and after july 22nd that number went up by 145 in one day 145 people going to a yep. summit 
in one day. It's crazy, right? Because it, what it is, it's it's really weather dependent. So on a good weather day, everybody's like, go, go, go. And so that's, you, everybody's seen the classical photo of, uh, of you know, the the very long line of people going to the top of uh, Everest. And mm-hmm. it's just like hundreds of people, single file, climbing up a mountain. It's like, that's ridiculous and dangerous. Yeah. So anyway, so this year alone in 2022, at least 200 people have reached the top. And so they've they've increased by a dramatic number the amount of people that are climbing this area and and so what that what the whole story is about though is the they they were showing photos of base camp and so there's a lot of people who feel that it's perfectly acceptable to abandon gear and human waste out in, in at base camp and in these pristine areas and it's like most people don't think it's appropriate but other people say well it was way too difficult to take this stuff out again. It's like, well, you brought it in. Yeah. So there's pictures of uh, of uh, tattered tents and gear and oxygen bottles and and you name it. It's just like it's like a uh, it's like a, a, a you know one of those open pit garbage dumps, dump, like open pit dump, right? And it's like incredible. And they're saying that uh, the some of the people who are in charge of this area, they just they're like gagging at the smell of rotting food and human waste and mm-hmm. and we talked uh, what about a year ago we talked about i think it was denali denali and uh, so there they've changed the rules if, if you have to take all of your human waste out with you because we're thawing and going down yeah. and it's it's the it's the water people drink further down down exactly right? so these melting glaciers feed streams and rivers that feed lower end communities and so it, what they're having here is like up on K2 there's just like this human excrement everywhere and it's just like it's like it's horrible does high altitude make you poop <laughs> eating makes you poop <laughs> so anyways it's it's really shocking that uh that some people think it's okay to it's perfectly acceptable to leave this waste behind because it's it it's difficult to haul back out but if you've hauled it in you should haul it out mm-hmm. and like we talked about about when we discussed Denali it's uh, there is specific rules because what they found is that they have brown glaciers flowing into the valleys below Denali and these brown glaciers are from human waste from like 30 40 years of p- people climbing right yeah so it's they're 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 doing one thing they're doing is the the Nimsdai Foundation. They are taking a 2023, or is it 2022? No, 23. 2023. What they're going to do is they're going to be paying Sherpas simply to go up to base camp at uh, at K2 and start cleaning up all of this waste and hauling down the broken tents and tent poles and and oxygen bottles and human waste and so on cleaning everything up and so there'll be a lot of people it's going to be very expensive but they're having a lot of sherpas up there just simply to to clean up because it's such an appalling mess and so how that relates to us is and we've seen it so much in the last little while and and we've seen it in uh, untold number of posts that we've seen on online media about uh, people going into crown land like people know of the certain crown land pristine areas that they've gone to since they were a kid and now there's like people you know hauling in junk and like i don't know how many people times people have posted pictures of of like the french river area where somebody's gone in there with a barbecue and left the barbecue behind Mm -hmm. or or you go to a campsite and there's like clothes and busted tents and tarps just left behind because people are going hey i'm done with it you know i'm not going to do this again so i might as well leave it behind we found lawn chairs uh, and uh, uh, beach umbrella it's incredible, eh? People just, it's like you hauled it in, haul it out. Yeah. And the problem is, is uh, either whether it's backcountry, front country, crown land, whatever, it's like it, we we are abusing the backcountry. And, and so a lot of people, we really need to start following the uh, seven principles of leave no trace, right? It's we shouldn't be destroying the backcountry. We have, there's a lot of future generations that are going to be using these areas and we can't be so irresponsible to leave all this waste behind. The other thing, that, I mean, yeah, it's definitely the waste part, but when you're looking at the amount of people that go up conveyor what I mean, number one, if I'm going to climb Mount Everest or K2, mm-hmm. I'm doing it because 
I guess like Hillary had said, because it's there. Yep, yep. You know, I want that special moment of me climbing, no one around for mm-hmm. hundreds of miles. But then when I look behind me, there's another 150 people going, exactly. take your picture, move it on, yep. take your picture, move it on. So just, yeah, just imagine how special is it when you're going up a very long escalator, you hear elevator music in the background, and you are looking ahead, there's 100 people ahead of you, 100 people behind you. It's not so special anymore. No. Not so special. So that's the one thing we're worrying about as well, because we were talking about it uh, seven years ago, I guess, mm-hmm. six, seven years ago. There was the group that did the meanest link. Yep. And we're all, what's the meanest link? Yeah, no exactly. one's done it for yeah. a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, I mean, this year alone, how many groups have done the meanest link in Algonquin it's, Park? It's crazy. People are doing it multiple times a year now, forwards, backwards, yeah. and and multiple challenges. And it's like, oh, this is my third time to do the meanest link this year. It's like it's a, it's a nothing burger now, right? Yeah. And that's, I mean, there, there's that aspect to it as well. Uh, as you said, you know, the social media, me first attitudes that we're, we're living in now. And when you start getting that many people, oh, look at this, look what we found. We're going to go do this now. And all mm-hmm. these people start going, it's not long till, you know, these backcountry spots you're going to are worn out, are worn out. And, There's people are yeah. living garbage. People are, yeah. and that's, that's what it is, is people find about these adventures. Yep. Yeah. And they want to be adventurous mm-hmm. and they want to, I mean, not saying, you know, stay in your armchair and watch TV, definitely yeah. get out and do stuff, but take the stuff with you when you're done. Clean up behind yourself. Make you know? things better than what you, what you, make things cleaner and better when you leave than when you arrived. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, but yeah, seeing the stuff that people are, are leaving on K2, it's just like when you got to pay a group of people to go up there and. Mm-hmm. Close it down and, and so, start cleaning for the year. Yeah, exactly. That's that's gotta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a shame. Like people are like you see how many people do go up Everest and go and do K two or go do and climbing out Denali or do the Minas Link or do the Brent Run. It's it really it's a shame that we're destroying what we used to be a personal experience and making it a public challenge. Mm-hmm. Like when, when the meanest link was first created by Algonquin Outfitters, it was it was a method of it was all created and designed by the Swift family and and uh, to, you know, it was a challenge for their employees. Hey, you know, you're going from AO to AO. So you're checking at each AO and and so then the Cap Camp Pathfinder learned about it and so because they have uh, they have ties with AO and and so then it, it was something for them, and it was like this is something that was theirs for a long time, and now everybody's doing it, and it's like it's really been watered down. If it wasn't for social media, no one would know about it. True, right? True. Uh, but yeah, yeah, you know what? It's and as as technology progresses, mm-hmm. because if you half the people, if ninety percent of the people that have done the meanest link in the last seven years, yeah. if they had to do it like they originally with the cedar strip yes. canvas canoes yeah. and and all that sort of unsupported and all that sort of thing, yeah. they wouldn't be doing it. Me and Grant Brower, we had planned. It just kind of fell apart because of uh, COVID and stuff like that. But we had planned because I have a canvas cedar strip canoe. And it's like, well, how authentic do we want to go? And we're so we were thinking of doing this, not a race, not nothing. We're just mm-hmm. going to do it traditional. We're going to do it heavy, and uh, we just never got it off the ground. But we we started planning it. We were yep. thinking about doing it. Yep. No one's done that in many many nope. many moons. Exactly. Everybody goes with the, the super lightest and quickest way yep. and supported, and you know, team members having going ahead and setting up tents for you. And it's yeah, like, yeah, come on. You got to keep with the spirit of it. Yeah. But, I mean, just to get back onto our topic is, is you know, like when you're starting to get all these people doing these things, mm-hmm. don't ruin it. Keep Take your garbage out with exactly. you. Exactly. Because that's exactly what's going to kill it. One thing that I was, one thing that crossed my mind when I was mentioning this to you was, uh, so there's, there's still potential mining going to go on in the Boundary Waters area. Oh, for the nickel. For the nickel. So they want to mine the nickel and whatever. And and so everybody's going, oh, no, you can't mine the Boundary Waters. Well, I don't know. What's worse? Like, and it might be debatable. It's like, so you have a mine in there to mine the nickel. Yes, it's going to make a mess. 
but you also have a, thousands of people going in there and making a mess of things. So like mm-hmm. all these new campers that don't know, you know, leave no trace principles and they're going in there and leaving a mess. It's like, well, at least the mine is, you know, isolated mess with all the campers. You spread it spread out across it out. the whole park. Yeah. So it's like, come on, like we, we, as campers, we have to be better. We have to be smarter, right? We definitely do. Ruin it for everybody in the future. They better not. I'm mm-hmm. mad. Uh, another thing that came my way from a few people, Alan Drummond uh, actually sent sent us this as well. Uh, actually, I think he was the first one to send this one to me, so I'll give him credit for it. A Nebraska man paddled 38 miles down the Missouri River in a boat, in quotations, made from a hollowed-out pumpkin to celebrate his 60th birthday and hopefully set a Guinness World Record. Dwayne Hansen set out from the public boat docks at Bellevue, Nebraska in the 846-pound pumpkin. Do you know a male moose is like about 1,300 pounds? Mm Mm-hmm. So, (laughs) just saying, giving you a rough uh, idea. Good gracious, are you pump kidding me? Yeah. Uh, I arrived in Nebraska City about 11 hours later. He said, he asked Bellevue City officials to serve as witnesses for his record-setting attempt. They say if you stay in your job long enough, you might see just about everything, and this morning was one of those days, a city witness said. (laughs) (laughs) Go big or gourd home. Gourd home, oh jeez, man. (laughs) <laughs> he squashed the competition. <laughs> uh, uh, door's there. Don't let it hit you on the way out, buddy. Uh, uh, pumpkin Vessel had the name SS Berta written on the back and had a cup holder carved into the hull. Hansen's wife, family, and friends were also there to document the journey and some of them following him in proper boat just in case the pumpkin ran into any trouble. And... <laughs> Previous record holder, and there is a previous record holder. Yes, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Journey by pumpkin boat was 25 and a half miles, or 41 kilometers, set in 2018, according to Guinness World Records website. 2018, so every four years, somebody's got to go... I don't think... It it never did say how big dude's pumpkin is. No, they don't say. Um, But... Uh, Guinness World Records spokesperson Kylie Galloway said the organization has received Hansen's application for the title and is awaiting evidence to review. He really squashed that uh, that record, eh? Yep. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> uh, within our application process, we provide the applicant with guidelines that are specific to that record category and must be adhered to to qualify. These guidelines also detail the evidence that must be submitted. Once received and reviewed, our records management team will then confirm the success or failure of the record attempt. Hansen lives in Syracuse, Nebraska, and enjoys growing large pumpkins, gourds, and other vegetables as a hobby. (laughs) How long till somebody tries to do something like in a large eggplant or squash or uh, <laughs> I don't know or, if they, uh, I don't know if you can grow them big enough or, well just think first person get a couple of really big zucchini or something make some water skis out of them <laughs> <laughs> just saying yeah yeah <laughs> but could you imagine being on the side of the road just having a little walk along oh enjoy nightly See, stroll <laughs> enjoying nature and you come zipping by in a pumpkin <laughs> What's going on here? Um, <laughs> there are questions over here on the riverbank, sir. <laughs> I, 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 a guy I work with, he uh, he grows these giant pumpkins, and so he's he he I don't know he's north of uh, Port Hope or something. So he uh, he does all this kind of stuff. He grows these giant pumpkins. He's been doing it for years, and uh, he said like. Some some of these seeds, if you can if you can grow a champion pumpkin, mm-hmm. you can sell the seeds for like a hundred bucks each. Really? Yeah, it's. I can't bucks. even grow a tomato plant. Over I know. There. I know. Eight hundred, nine hundred pound <laughs> pumpkin. We, I went on a canoe trip with them. There's a group of us, and uh, we we're about on day three, and 
and we were talking about you know how many more we're something something about how many meals were up because wait how many more meals do we have he said well there's like i don't know three or four more days i thought this was a five-day trip it's like no it's a seven-day trip i only left enough water for five days for my wife to water my pumpkin (laughs) So he was panicked. He was like, oh, my God, what do I do? Because he mixes up a special batch. Of, he's got, you know, the, the big totes on a pallet, the big yeah. plastic those square. Big white blo- plastic. Yeah. yeah. So he mix, He had two of those mixed up with a special fertilizer at the right concentration. And he said he only had five days worth of water for his wife. He's like, she's going to have to water with normal water. He was all panicked, right? <laughs> He says you can only water these things so fast because if they grow too fast, they pop, they split. Right. So you have to water them just the right amount. He said it's like very scientific. He logs it. He has a certain amount of water certain times a day and yada, yada, yada. It's like, oh, buddy, you got a problem. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, he was so panicked. So he had, there's two days his wife had to water the pumpkin with normal water, not fertilized water. And how often do you talk to this guy? Uh, he's retired now, so I haven't talked to him in about a year and a half. My only question would be, how much for a pumpkin? I got a record to break. (laughs) (laughs) He did win a local competition once, but I can't remember the weights of his pumpkins. I wonder how one of those would stock up against like a set of rapids. Yeah. Or a waterfall drop. Probably not so well. They're pretty soft. (laughs) You'd have to be very careful. I think if it was wasn't quite ripe, it'd yes, still be hard. Correct. Yes. Right. So you get mm-hmm. it just before it starts ripening. Yeah. Hollow it out. Go down a river, <laughs> and over a nice drop of fog. It's got to be some sort of record. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Right. And what the uh, the Japanese they grow square watermelons. Oh yeah. They yeah. Put, they put the the baby watermelon in a box, and it grows to the shape of its the container. Box, yeah. They do this for shipping, right? Yeah. And so I suppose you could build a canoe shaped watermelon <laughs> a canoe shaped form for the pumpkin to grow yeah. in it'll grow to the form of the ah. that's a kayak shaped pumpkin what's going on here yeah, there you go <laughs> wow and if something happens where you wrap it around a rock it's biodegradable exactly ah. <laughs> what, what is, happened uh the bear came at night and ate my boat yeah, he ate my boat <laughs> a moose came in i had the teddy bears I, I, had a picnic i had to chase off the the raccoons every night <laughs> there's not enough duct tape in the world to salvage this bad boy oh man but when i look at I see a pumpkin that big. All I'm thinking is, you know the uh, pumpkin catapults? Oh, yeah. What size catapult would you need oh, man. to throw a 900-pound pumpkin? That'd be a big trebuchet. You'd have to have one big lever. Yeah. <laughs> but just think. And could you imagine if that hit something? <laughs> that would hurt. <laughs> oh, the possible. Do you got your buddy's number? I do. I got ideas. <laughs> I need to talk to him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's leave this with one really cool, really cool thing. So I know how, uh, I guess it was, was that two years ago now, they found that canoe in Wisconsin buried. Mm-hmm. And they say, like, so old. And that's what they used to do is bury them in the winters and then yes. dig them up. Yeah, and dig them up yeah. so they preserve over the winter. Yeah. So a team of researchers affiliated with multiple institutions in Chile and Argentina have found the remains of a woman buried in a canoe approximately 800 years ago. Hmm. She wow. was buried 800 years ago. They didn't find her 800 years yeah. ago. Yeah. The first evidence of such a burial to be found in Argentinian Patagonia. Hmm. Remains were found at a dig site called Nguyen Antug, which is close to Lake Lacar. In the western part of Argentina. She must have been very important because it's to do something to that level. She must have been. You would think. Yeah. Chief or chief's wife or something. Well, and I put it to daughter because analysis has shown that the woman was between 17 and 25 years old at the time of her death. Mm -hmm. Researchers were not able to determine the cause of death. Yeah. They found a jug placed near her head and she was surrounded by almost 600 bits of wood from a single Chilean cedar tree. 
were also signs that the wood had been charred. Wooden canoes at the time, known as wampo, were hollowed out using fire. Hmm. Uh, testing of the woman's bone fragment showed she was a, from approximately 1142 AD, which means she was likely a member of the Mapuche culture, and she lived and died before the Spanish arrived. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, find, now, the find marks the first time a canoe-type burial has been seen in Argentinian Patagonia and represents a truly rare find. Most canoe burials were for men. Yeah, like chiefs and mm-hmm. yeah, tribal chiefs. Researchers suggest their finding hints that the practice might have been more widespread than thought. Hmm. Which is cool. Like I was say, it was pretty cool that they're finding it like... A woman buried as, I mean, if they're saying it was for important people or, you know, men's, you know, chiefs and stuff like that, then she had to be someone important. So what is it in a bog or is it, it was buried? It had, something had to preserve it. Must've been in mud. They didn't actually say, they just said they found it. Hmm. Right. Um, prior research has suggested that burying people in a canoe was part of the ritual intended to allow deceased individuals to make the final journey across mystical waters to another land where they would reside in a place known as the destination of souls. The researchers note that the jug found next to her head had clearly been put there by whoever was charged with her burial. And there was also signs that she had been laid out on a bed of freshwater clams her positioning also strongly suggested she had been laid in a canoe as a sort of coffin before being placed in the grave. Huh. How cool is that to find that? That's amazing. To find... and so it, in, in an area that's never been found something yeah. like that before, and a woman. I think this stuff is fascinating. Like, unfortunately, you're, you're disrupting a grave, but you're able to tell a lot about... A community, a people by by what they, how they bury their, you know, their these people and so on, right? It's mm-hmm. some of these ceremonial burials are. That's I think that's really neat to have been able to find it intact mm-hmm. for the first place, right? After eight hundred years, it's incredible. Yeah. Pretty cool, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's all I got this week. You got anything else? No, I don't. Um, next week is going to be a, wa- a week off. Our first real week off. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> Just, you know, usually what we do is we, we uh, record two episodes uh, when one of us are going on holidays. Uh, but uh, things have been so hectic lately that there's just have not had the time, um, unfortunately, to... Um, do some more research on a few more things and uh, we just said, you know what? Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> if we split up some of our long episodes, like we could have got four episodes of some of those Kevin, Kevin Callan. <laughs> <laughs> four? That was a mini-series on HBO. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Game of Callans. Yeah. Yeah. So everybody don't uh, suffer from withdrawal symptoms of not having us online next week, but uh, we're taking the week off. Yeah, I'm going uh, to Tomogamy on a canoe trip. Mm-hmm. Change of the seasons. Yep. There'll be a story when you get back. And you are... I'm taking the week off. You're just taking <laughs> the week off. You're going to be sitting there going, yeah. well, next uh, Tuesday going, what was I supposed to be doing tonight? Am I supposed to be somewhere? I'm supposed to be somewhere. What am I forgetting? <laughs> what am I forgetting? Well, see, the problem is, is when I'm not here, Sean can get a uh, a stand-in, a guest host or whatever, or we record ahead. But uh, I don't know how to use any of his equipment. So I couldn't record and do a guest host because I wouldn't have a clue how to even upload this. He uh, he takes uh, job protection measures by not training me how to do any of this stuff so that I can't take over his job. I have no idea how to buy beer, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Derek, Derek's the only one that buys beer and he buys it from a secret location yes. and, and he brings it in special cans and, <laughs> and how it makes it into the beer fridge, I don't know. So, And, well, <laughs> and this week's beer wasn't that great. No, I, I noticed by the full bottle that's still... Yeah, so last week it wasn't that great. It was Last week it was a sour. This week it's a peach Hefeweizen from Tilted Glass, which was a uh, man-antler beer, but they've changed ownership, so it's a new name. So this is Gorgeous Peach, Peach Hefeweizen. 
And I'm not a fan. That makes five of us. (laughs) (laughs) All righty. Uh, well, if you want to find out more about us, you can find us at paddlingadventuresradio.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can download or stream our episodes on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Player FM, and all your favorite podcast downloading sites. All you got to do is go to Google and type Paddling Adventures Radio, and it comes up with billions, because I did that. <laughs> <laughs> or you can go to the episode page at paddlingadventuresradio.com, and you can download or stream all our episodes there. If you enjoy the podcast, please share it with friends, family, and fellow paddlers. I want to thank everybody for uh, listening this week. I'm Sean Rowley. And I'm Derek Specht. We'll see you in two weeks' time. <laughs>